Uh, my name is David Mustardi. I live in Berkeley, California. So the, the question is simple, which is how big is the solar system? Um, back when I was a boy in the 1960s, a million years ago, um, the, the popular idea was that the solar system ended at Pluto. That was, you, you, you put up a nice white picket fence. That was the, the end of it. But then, in 2012, NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft did something that's never been done before. It left the neighborhood of our outer planets. And all of a sudden, the print media and online media started reporting that Voyager 1 had left the solar system. The spacecraft is now the first human-made object. It's the first spacecraft to leave the vast bubble of space that surrounds our sun. Well, now, now hang on. <laughs> we, just, we just had these discoveries of these cool big objects like Sedna and, and Eris that were far, far farther away than the Voyagers are now. How could the Voyagers have left the solar system if Sedna is farther away? And we know about things that are much farther away still, the, the Kuiper Belt, the Oort Cloud. So did NASA's Voyager spacecraft leave the solar system? The answer is yes and no. Our listener David is right. The solar system as we know it is changing as new technology can help reveal more about our little spot in the Milky Way. NASA's two Voyager spacecraft launched in August and September of 1977 and went on the first ever tour of the planets of our solar system. They sent back some of the first detailed images of worlds we had only ever seen through telescopes before. But after Neptune, the robotic explorers kept going and going and going and going until, according to NASA, on August 25, 2012, Voyager 1 flew beyond the heliopause, leaving our solar bubble. At the time, it was about 11 billion miles from the sun. Then, in November 2018, Voyager 2, traveling in a different direction, crossed the heliopause into interstellar space. The spacecraft are now considered the first interstellar missions. I'm Emily Speck, and today on Space Curious, what does it mean to go interstellar? How do we define the vastness of space? And who's making these decisions? Yeah, so the interstellar medium is essentially all of the space that's between stars, and it's filled with a diffuse gas. We call this gas plasma often because it's ionized, which means that it's a gas that's full of protons and electrons. And this gas is really important because it kind of plays an integral role in mediating star formation. So this gas in the interstellar medium, that's what stars ultimately are formed out of. Uh, but stars also, when they end their lives, eject gas back into the interstellar medium. So there's kind of this feedback going on. And studying how gas is distributed in the interstellar medium tells us a lot about how our galaxy is structured and why it's structured that way. Um, and that kind of thing. Meet Stella Ocker, a planetary scientist with Cornell University. Uh, and I study the interstellar medium in a broad variety of astrophysical contexts, from 
the interstellar medium outside our solar system to the interstellar medium of our whole galaxy and the interstellar media of other galaxies. Stella was the lead author on a paper based on data from the Voyager spacecraft. And what we discovered is that Voyager 1 has found these very quiet, persistent vibrations in interstellar gas. Uh, These are essentially low-level perturbations in the gas that we see for almost three years of Voyager data. And seeing these really persistent, uh, low-level vibrations in the gas is really interesting because it actually lets us use the frequency of those vibrations to measure the density of the gas that Voyager is traveling through. Um, I really liked that the one of your colleagues used a comparison, and I think you did too in, in the release and in, in Nature, the, the paper, about how this space, it kind of had like the feel of a gentle rain or like swimming. Can you kind of describe, does it have a sound or is that, how do you, how do you kind of know that? Yeah, so there are a couple of pieces to this. We sometimes refer to it as the sound of the gas because the frequency of the vibrations in the gas is actually at radio wavelengths. So. These are wavelengths that we're used to thinking of in terms of sound. Um, Now, the actual signal that we've detected is very weak, so it's really hard to actually make it uh, audible to human ears without significant manipulation. But that's why we often call it a sound. And here's that sound from Voyager. Take it away, ionized gas. Up until this study, Voyager 1 has been seeing these bright kind of thunderstorms, I think as my my colleague put it, which are essentially these events that happen when the sun emits coronal mass ejections and these coronal mass ejections send shock waves coursing out uh, through the solar system into the interstellar medium And when those shock waves enter the interstellar medium, they cause the gas to vibrate very strongly in response. And so Voyager 1 can see those really large, brief vibrations. And those are kind of like the thunderstorms or the lightning storms uh, that Voyager 1 has seen. But now we've also detected this much quieter, persistent uh, vibration in the gas which is more like the the gentle rain that coincides and persists in between the thunderstorms, so to speak. Now that Voyager 1 is in a gentle rain, it's entered a new area called the heliosphere. We'll get to that in a second. First, Stella explains what scientists mean when they say within the solar system. So technically when we use the word the solar system, what we're referring to is the sun, all of the planets, and beyond the planets, the Kuiper belt and the Oort cloud. And the Oort cloud is kind of the farther, far, farthermost edge of the solar system. And it's this huge cloud of kind of rocks and debris 
and dust that encases the whole, all of the planets and everything inside the solar system. And the Oort cloud is actually very far away. This is the part where it gets a little confusing because Voyager 1 has still not yet reached the Oort cloud and won't for a while. The Oort cloud is the most distant region of our solar system, according to NASA, and it's many times further away from the sun than even the Kuiper belt, which is beyond Neptune. Its size is so massive that its outer edge is estimated to be billions upon billions of miles away from the sun. So if Voyager hasn't reached the Oort cloud, it's still in the solar system, right? Not quite. Now, in addition to the Oort cloud, there's also this thing called the heliosphere. And the heliosphere refers to the region of space that's encased by the solar wind. So the sun emits this ionized gas, this wind of plasma, and that solar wind essentially pushes out against gas in the interstellar medium. And as it pushes out against the interstellar medium, it forms this bubble that we call the heliosphere. And the heliosphere actually does not reach out as far as the Oort cloud. The heliosphere encases the sun and the outer planets. And that's when we uh, said that Voyager 1 entered interstellar space, because once you're outside of the heliosphere, you're no longer in the realm of the solar wind dominating uh, your environment. You're now in an environment where the interstellar medium is dominating. So. It's a little bit complicated and nuanced, but those are the those are the main distinctions. Maybe a little bit complicated and nuanced for a scientist, but very complicated for me. Yeah, so it's a little funny because based on these definitions, what that means is that technically some of the solar system is actually in interstellar space. But yeah, that's <laughs> that's how it works. Okay, let's see. So who kind of who kind of gets to define that? Who gets to say, you know, are there international astronomy groups? You know, who kind of says, oh, well, that just means it's, you know, it's interstellar. Like who who kind of gets to make those decisions? That's a great question. And the answer is it's complicated. There are there are a lot of debates about these these questions in the scientific literature and at conferences. And we do have the International Astronomical Union, which um, is called the IAU for short. And the IAU does does make these uh, astronomical definitions in a way that's kind of universalized and standardized for the community. Um, so you might remember that at one point Pluto stopped being a planet. This is a a rather contentious issue in the public, but the IAU is the one that made that decision. And they're the one who decides what is the definition of a planet and that sort of thing. Now, when it comes to defining the area of interstellar space that Voyager is traveling through, that's still an area of open research. And so it's a little less straightforward and you'll see in the literature people sometimes have different ways of talking about this this region of space and we're still not sure exactly how far the sun's influence extends into the interstellar medium and so that's one of the open questions that we're trying to answer using voyager 
To say that the Pluto-planet debate was contentious is putting it lightly. Educators, astronomers, and the general public were outraged and confused when Pluto was declassified as a planet. Pluto had it coming from the beginning. It was, it was like, it was never really belong. Pluto's orbit crosses that of another planet. That's no kind of behavior for a planet. How could the IAU just decide our ninth planet wasn't a planet anymore? And that debate intensified when NASA sent the New Horizons spacecraft on a flyby of Pluto and it sent back the most detailed images yet, showing a complicated, fascinating world. But this demotion of sorts for Pluto from the International Astronomy Union was a moot point for those who were behind the mission. I'm Alice Bowman, New Horizons Mission Operations Manager at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. And this is where the Mission Operations Center is in Laurel, Maryland. But I can tell you that it totally did not make any difference at all. When you look at what we saw at Pluto, it's just an amazing place. And it really has um, brought to light what these objects so very far from the sun still have um, in their bag of tricks, so to say. I mean, liquid water ocean. How would you ever believe that something so far from the sun could have a liquid water ocean or ice volcanoes? Um, and it sort of implies that, you know, these Kuiper Belt objects are, are very interesting. You know, they're not just gray balls of uh, rock. Pluto is a perfect example of how our definition of what's in our solar system continues to evolve. It is the largest object within the Kuiper Belt, which is an asteroid belt that surrounds our planets. Yet another layer to go through before reaching interstellar space, long before the Oort cloud. But for a long time, it was thought Pluto was our ninth and final object. Uh, yes, um, when Pluto was discovered, it was thought to you know, be that missing planet that was theorized, but it didn't quite fit the mathematical prediction of what that ninth planet would look like. And now we know that it was, that it is actually the first hyperbelt object that was discovered. In 1992, Jane Liu, an astronomer at MIT, and her colleague David Jewett discovered the first hyperbelt object beauond Pluto using a telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Once they did that, hundreds started being discovered and it's pretty amazing how many Kuiper Belt objects are out there. And so um, that was, I guess, the beginning of us realizing that, you know, the solar system doesn't stop <laughs> at Pluto. New Horizons didn't stop at Pluto, though. It's still going and going and going. We actually flew by another Kuiper Belt object, much, much smaller, named Arakoth. And this one always amazes me. You know, we, we came within 7,800 miles of the surface of Pluto, and our objective for this very small object, Arakoth, was to come in at about uh, 2,000 um, miles, so much closer to an object that was discovered in 2014. And here we are in 2019 doing a very close flyby. Um, simply amazing. Let's bring back our interstellar specialist, Stella Auker. Beyond that, right? Do you think it's possible, you know, there could be some other planets out there that we don't know about that would then 
again, kind of extend what we know about our, our, our planets and our solar system? That's a tricky question to answer. I think it's, it seems possible, but it's actually really difficult to confirm the presence of very far away planets like planet nine. The, the evidence that we have for planet nine is not conclusive. So without kind of more direct imaging of the planet, it would it would be hard at this point to say that it's really there. So definitely a really interesting open area of study. Meanwhile, the Voyager spacecrafts continue traveling further and further away from the sun in the opposite directions. I think Voyager is estimated to power down at some point in the next decade. So I'm definitely hoping to get as much data as possible out of it while it's still up and running and sending back data to us. It will be a very long time before another spacecraft travels to this unknown realm very, very far away. New Horizons will get there, but unfortunately it won't have enough power to continue sending data back. Again, Alice Bowman of the New Horizons mission. New Horizons will reach interstellar space, but we will not be able to get any information from the spacecraft because it will have no power essentially left to turn around and send us information. Um, The spacecraft, we believe, probably the mid-2040s, it will reach interstellar space. But in the meantime, it's still sending back data and still making observations. So what are some things that you're excited about to come with, with New Horizons? Well, of course, the big one is we hope to be able to find another flyby target that's within um, the realm of where our propellant can can take us because we launched with a limited amount and um, we have you know a certain amount left. The Kuiper Belt uh, extends from beyond Neptune, so about 30 AU, and theorized to about 50 AU. And our spacecraft right now is a slightly more than 50 AU from the sun. So we're on that edge of discovery. Now, is it 50 AU? Does the density drop off? Um, Will we find another flyby target? We don't know. Um, But we continue to image other Kuiper Belt objects. The team will actually update the spacecraft software in July 2021, which is much more complicated than updating your iPhone. It takes seven hours for a signal from Earth to reach the spacecraft via the Deep Space Network, a series of antennas around the world communicating with many NASA spacecraft and rovers on Mars. Because as you can imagine, we're so very far from Earth, the amount of time it takes us to get down an image or a picture is just getting longer and longer. And um, once we do that, we will actually increase the capabilities of our spacecraft. The hunt is on as New Horizons gets further and further from Earth, eventually running out of fuel and maybe two decades from now, following behind Voyager 2 into the realm of interstellar space. Bringing it back to our listeners' question, how big is the solar system and where does it end? The answer has really yet to be determined, and what we do know will always continue to change. But that's a good thing. 
Do you think, you know, we're just going to continue to expand our vision of the solar system and what engineering can do to explore it? I mean, the next decades probably hold just some really exciting inventions, don't you think? I totally agree. I mean, just look, I, I think about when I was growing up as a child and learning about the solar system and what I was taught and how much more we know now. And that's, that's you know, been, I even hate to say, but it's probably been on the order of just 50 years. Um, so it is amazing how fast things can change and how science just keeps getting cooler and cooler. If you've got a question or a story idea, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at EMSpec or submit your idea on the homepage at spacecurious.show. This episode was produced and edited by Zach Rosen and myself. We had additional music from Rain. I've linked to their Bandcamp page in our show notes. Thank you very much to Alice Bowman with Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory and Stella Auker with Cornell University for helping us break down this complicated topic. And a special thank you to David Mustardi, who inspired this episode with his fascinating question. Until next time, stay curious.